right? Yeah, it's just there's a couple times where it's every word okay. you do that. Okay, so I'll, I'll be, but I I need to gesticulate. Do no, but do it in the air. Yes, except not this hand in here. Yeah. <laughs> because um, then it becomes tattoo. <laughs> I'm Charlie Sohn, a screenwriter and journalist. I'm Agnes Reese, a pop singer and songwriter. And this is Mysteries of the Euroverse. On today's episode, we're talking about the political history of Eurovision. First, we deep dive into the creation of Eurovision as a political institution. Then, we talk to Ukrainian singer Jamala about her politically charged Eurovision winning song. Finally, we visit Peabody Award-winning journalist Brooke Gladstone as she tries to guess which songs were too political for the contest. We take a look behind the scenes at all the scandal songs and queens. So come along as we traverse all the mysteries of the Euroverse. All right, we are here for another episode of Mysteries of the Euroverse. Uh, Magnus, how are you? I'm I'm good and excited. I mean, this is our first in a in a line of politically themed episodes. And I have to say, I am very very excited. I know, girl. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like I I know I've been annoying you for a while about this, but but for me, it's like interesting because I think I came to Eurovision later in life immediately the questions that started popping into my head had to do with the context in which this competition right. operated. I think because the U.S. is such a large country, it's often hard to think that international relations can come into a music competition. When you say that you're representing a nation, as every artist in Eurovision does, it becomes a little bit of a complicated relationship of like, what if you have, you know, two countries that are at the brink of war or at war with totally. each other? You know, art has a message. So because of that, politics come into play. Mm -hmm. And also, let's think about 70 years of European history. Right. It's been through some rough patches. I think that that's a great way of framing it because actually like, Eurovision's relationship to the politicization of the competition itself has changed over the years. And, and I just want to, for, for context, uh, jump in with the fact that something you're going to hear us reference a lot in this episode and future episodes yeah. is Rule 271. Yeah, that songs and acts uh, need to be apolitical, right? Eurovision was started in the aftermath of World War II. And part of at least the self-mythology of Eurovision is that, like, the goal of Eurovision was to try and help stitch Europe back together. You know, right? what's the EBU's favorite line? It's like stitching Europe back together through the universal language of music. The way the EBU talks about that history is they marry it to this idea that the festival is apolitical, right? Because uh, there'd been too much fighting and too much arguing. Right. And I think that actually that's the opposite of... Um, what really happened. I was very surprised to find out that the idea that an act should be apolitical uh, did not come about until the year 2000, right? When you think about those other European institutions that were founded around the same time or before, right? Like the UN, what became the EU, like those are bodies for navigating disagreement, right? Right. And, right. and I would say that, you know, um, I think it's fair to say in the first 44 years of life, 
You develop a strong identity. Um, I wouldn't know that. <laughs> but but I but I do think for something that is seen as such a big part of the identity of Eurovision, yeah. 44 years, it didn't exist. When Eurovision was created, it was a time when everyone had to be able to gather on the TV for one set of programming. Right. And I think because of that, people had to be more comfortable being uncomfortable. What we talk about needing so much these days is a public square, Right. We talk about all these social media platforms. I think, you know, a lot of those are designed for you to find your bubble, right? Yes. Your stream is based on who you follow. Yes. Um, this, the things that are suggested to you are things that are going to get you riled up. And I think the thing about Eurovision is you, in times when you see that shows can't live up to the viewership of their, you know, heyday or whatever they would call it, Eurovision really still has those numbers. Yeah. It really brings together Everyone. And I think that the the thing that we're really going to be tracking over this episode, though, is like, if you're bringing everyone together, to what end, right? We're going to talk about what I would say a more political version of Eurovision looked like, which yep. is basically up until the year 2000. Um, we're then going to talk about how and why that changed uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s. And then finally, I think we're going to talk a little bit about why we might be returning back to the model that existed from 1956 up until the year 2000 and why that actually might be a good thing given what's changed about Europe in the last 23 years. I think many people might say, oh, you know, it was apolitical in culture and then it came apolitical by rule. Yeah. But I think really what we're going to dig into now, that it wasn't apolitical by culture. Right. And that's really defined by the fact that politics is a very present in the very first edition of the contest. One of Germany's songs that they sent that year. It was sung by this man, Walter Andreas Schwartz. His father was murdered by the Nazis. He himself was persecuted by the Nazis. And the song is about how his country that he was representing was not properly dealing with its recent history. Imagine if you were watching American Idol and someone walked out and sang a song that was like, I cannot believe there are still uh, memorials to the Confederacy in this country. When I talked to um, Jean-Philippe Detender, who uh, is the deputy director of the EBU, he made a really strong argument for not making politics explicit, letting these values sort of exist underneath the surface, and then you can maybe bring more people into the fold, and that's how you achieve unity. And literally, the history of this contest starts with a German Jew stepping on an international broadcast and saying, my country is not dealing with what happened to me. I do think in Europe, there's been a much stronger willingness yeah. to say, I am ashamed of what my family history has taken part of. I think it's also important to highlight the fact that Germany sent that number. Germany as a broadcaster was willing to have the debate. Yeah. And then the EBU on top of that. Yes. I do think basically what we're saying is if uh, American Idol talked more about slavery, we'd all be in a better place. Listen, I'm sure Simon Cowell's perspective yeah. is very nuanced. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Carrie Underwood's new album. Oh my <laughs> Let's God. Let's talk about slavery. Let's talk. Okay, but so to get back to Eurovision, it had this- <laughs> Oh, this is about Eurovision? <laughs> in the waning years of Salazar's dictatorship in Portugal, um, which, you know, longest lasting authoritarian rule in Europe, Portugal sent uh, Fernando Tordo uh, with a song called Torada, which was an attack on the regime uh, that used the metaphor of a bullfight. There's another moment of the EBU saying, listen, if the Germans want to decide whether they want to criticize themselves, have at it. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, in Portugal, it's like, if this dictator wants to try and stop them from sending this number, that's a Portuguese issue, yeah. right? Uh, so you don't have as much fighting between nations. Although you only need to look at something like uh, Maritza Koch's Paniamo, Paniamo, which actually was a criticism of Turkey's invasion of Cyprus, right? And so right. this is a Greek singer uh, criticizing Turkey. Um, and it it really has kicked off this long, tense back and forth between Greece and Turkey. In Italy in 1974, Gigliola Conchetti's song C, um, you know, at the time, divorce was on the ballot in Italy. So it was a pro-divorce song. Italy censored its own act. Like, yeah. they didn't show their own act on TV. They were worried about it swinging the election, right? Would you cancel the televised debate about the issue? Because right. that might sway someone? Right. And is the whole point? I think that's, that's brilliant because it really gets to, I think how you view music and how you view Eurovision based right. on that, right? Is music this like weird witch doctor emotional thing like that, like we have to keep it like really dumb. Otherwise, like the magic power of a melody right. is going to convince people to be like, I don't know. Yeah. Or, or, or is it like, oh my God, here's a broadcast with 200 million people. Every country except Italy saw Italy's entry. <laughs> yes. Yes. And, and not only that, they came in second place. Yes. Behind this little, tiny little band called ABBA. Yeah. And also, I, I, I'm not going to say that their song is extremely political, but still a song about war, not about peace. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, I, you know what? I'm going to table the argument over whether Waterloo is a political <laughs> song. All right, we got to get, we got to move on real quick. The worst moment, I think, of the early years of Eurovision was when Francisco Franco uh, hosted the contest in 1969, right? He basically got what he wanted, which was a huge advertisement for his regime that made it look progressive. It was this huge uh, gift to a dictatorship. Franco actually bribed the jury in the year before. Even though Eurovision might argue, we didn't pick it, they won, this happened, you know, they found out about the bribes too late. I don't know. There are many arguments you could make, but you still let it happen. Yeah. Because here's the thing. There's requirements for the size of the arena. Yeah. There's a requirement for that an international airport needs to be nearby. If you're going to put other hosting requirements on countries, like maybe ki- not killing your own people through extrajudicial killings, like is should be a requirement. So, you know, going back to our uh, chronology here, um, you know, we had the fall of the Iron Curtain, right? right? Because you had this whole new set of countries that suddenly were being integrated into the contest. And, and who also were kind of changing their identity and right. their affiliation, right. right? Europe needs to talk about politics again. Maybe Europe needs to sing about politics again. (laughs) How international relations, not just accidentally, but directly gets involved in Eurovision is really wild. I know. It's oppression set to music. (laughs) (laughs) When you think about the idea that Eurovision songs should be apolitical and this being codified in uh, the year 2000, thinking about that broader political context is important, right? And it's this idea of the end of history. Essentially, there was no competition to small L liberalism and democracy, right? I think that we all really internalized this, that it was not super important to have big conversations anymore. This 
all goes hand in hand with the EBU's desire to expand the contest, to commercialize it more. You know, the early years, the EBU and the member broadcasters having this self-conception of being government-licensed public broadcasters. Most European countries are smaller than the U.S., um, in, in a lot of these countries, the reason you had a TV license and a public broadcaster was because there wasn't enough commercial interest, first right. of all. And then you get to this era where, where commercial TV channels uh, start uh, launching. Yeah. And in Norway, many people would talk about this. Well, I have three TV channels that don't charge me money. Why should I pay a TV license? Right. And so there became this pressure for viewership. So, so there is like... Publicly, we have a responsibility behind closed doors. We really want to make sure that viewers are tuning in. If you want to win in the cultural space, go after young people. Right. Right. And and that's what the new TV channels did. Yeah. Right? The commercial TV channels, they went for young people. You know, if you think about the stereotypes of different youth generations, right? Late 50s, 60s, 70s, what we're talking about, broad brush, are the hippies. Dylan, Joni, all those, right? And then, yeah, and then in the 80s and 90s, like Gen X was considered to be deeply apolitical, right? Now that we see Gen Z and the level of engagement that you get from them, there's a way in which the rules of Eurovision probably have just changed to keep up with the audience. So Eurovision had adjusted to this new apolitical reality, I think. And then, you know, in 2008, right? we had the global financial crisis, um, which if you think about the end of history, it's like suddenly you have a financial crisis that shakes everyone's belief in this globalized market system. We don't have major land wars in Europe anymore. And then 2008, we get the, you know, Russian-Georgian war, right? Which is an early indication that, you know, maybe Vladimir Putin isn't just this like great guy who's going to bring like market capitalism to uh, Russia and be less drunk than Boris Boris Yeltsin was, you know? Um, And then, you know, in 2009, we have Netanyahu's return to power in Israel. A year later in 2010, we also get, you know, Orban's 2.0 in Hungary, which is also more authoritarian. Right. And then four years after that, right, we have Erdogan uh, becoming prime minister in Turkey and capping off that period from 2008 to 2014, of course, is uh, Putin's invasion of Crimea. We are, again, looking at a fractured Europe, but now we're looking at a fractured Europe where the institution designed to exist in that world has tied its own hands. It's easy not to implement a rule. But it's hard to remove one. I kind of feel like they're all sitting there being like... We're, we're political. We, yeah, we're, we're seeing where this is going. Um, probably doing it right now for some reason. They're they're scared to pull the trigger. You don't have a band like Let Three, right? Uh, they constructed a statue of Angela Merkel taking a dump. So you don't have that band come and sing a song that is very directly a reference to Putin and um, uh, that calls him a moron and a crocodile. In a competition where you're heavily featuring Ukraine. But I think that's the problem with the rule still being on the books. It really does mean that like they're kind of flying blind right now. And I think it does leave people with the impression that certain countries are allowed to voice their opinions and others others aren't. uh, Totally. I I think that's uh, the challenge. Eurovision is doing the exact same thing that all of these other institutions have to do, which is regain their ability to think about themselves as liberal institutions where speech is something that we value. 
right? Europe is coming apart at the seams and we need some fucking power ballots, okay? <laughs> but I think it is that thing of like, in the modern day we live in, where one member of your broadcasting union invades another member. Right. You can't go back to a time where that hasn't happened. Right. That is will... now part of your identity and, and, and your future. Right. If you want to continue existing as an organization. I think that's a great place to end this segment. And with that, let's get to our guests. First is Ukrainian singer Jamala as she tells us about her Eurovision win and her latest album, which is really a response to Putin's attempt to erase the history of Crimean Tatars. The album, Karam, is a collection of Crimean folk tunes backed by a full orchestra and a group of Crimean folk musicians. And actually, shortly after our interview, Russia officially banned Jamala for her activism. Wow, that's insane. That's crazy. And then we talked to Brooke Gladstone, host of On the Media, and we really get into what makes this song political and how Eurovision can best approach an increasingly divided Europe. All right, so uh, first we're going to listen to part of Jamala's 2016 Eurovision hit, 1944, and then jump right into the interviews. got a very special guest with us on this episode. She is not Gaga. She is not Amy. Amy. She is Jamala. It's Jamala. Jamala. How are you? Thank you so much for doing this interview. I am so excited to, to get to talk with you. I'm such a huge fan of, of all of your you. music. So I, I guess I just want to start right off. You competed first to get into Eurovision with Smile. Oh, the Smile, it was, it was me in that time, at that moment. It was huge inspiration for me. Charlie Chaplin's song, Smile, Smile Through Your Heart Is Aching, Smile Even Though It's Breaking. It really resonates with me in that moment. And nowadays I see that the song is still alive. But on my concert, I didn't sing it. Because it's not me nowadays. Because it's not uh, resonate with me today. As you know, a story about the Bob McFerrin, Don't Worry, Be Happy. That yes. I'm sad that stop pushing me to sing this song, sing this song, because it's not me in this moment. When you talk about the change in who you are as an artist from Smile to to now, do you, do you think of that more in terms of how you've changed or how the world has changed or both? Yes. I think it's both. In that moment, I, I had a huge inspiration from Amy Winehouse, by my town records, 60s. I was in Kiev. Today, I'm in Warsaw. Today, I'm mother. All these things inspired me a lot. They, they changed my mood. And that's why my music is like that. I did want to talk about yeah. uh, Karam. What was the research process for, for that? Like, how did you find the folk songs? How did you go about choosing which ones went on the album? I can say that I work on this album uh, over decades. This is album is my desire to create a strong voice for my homeland Crimea to tell a story that were previously unknown 
uh, rewritten, forgotten, because each song in this album from different part of the Crimea Peninsula, from Yalta, Sinthropol, Sevastopol, Jankoy, from sea to, to the mountains, I found more than music, more than unique melodies, ornamental. I found characters. For me, it was inspiration from um, Game of Thrones, Seven Kingdoms. And each of this kingdom sounds different. In this album, the, the song from the seashore, from the Yalta, Sudak, Alushta, they are full of the emotions. They are so romantic, something completely different than people from uh, mountains. Can you imagine all these composers like Avatar by James Horner? They have illusion on some folk song. I have even better. I have these songs and they are real. And yeah. these songs are more than hundreds of years. And I think you've said this before, that even not understanding the language When you listen, you feel those emotions. You feel the sort of universality of this song written so long ago could, in a contemporary world, still speak to people. And more than 80 musicians joined to the work on this album, and five of them are folk musicians, Crimean Tatar folk musicians. And then the full war started. We almost lost it. The album remained under the fire in Kyiv, literally, literally, it was under attack. How, how were you able to rescue it? My friend, my sound engineer, sound producer, uh, Sergei Krutsenko, he was in Kyiv in that moment, and then the Russian full-scale invasion started. He called me and said, oh my God, Jamala, forgive me, I didn't save anything. All information are in the recording building. I tried to save it. And he he did. Whoa. Yeah. Oh, that's and uh, unfortunately, he, he died in this January because it was really hard for him to live um, with all these horrible things in our life, in our days. I'm so sorry to hear that. Yeah. I, I, I... Thank you. Obviously, this brings up Putin's war. And I was thinking that so much of what it seems that your project is and so much of what you do, both with Karam and with uh, 1944, is about history, right? Preserving history. The image that everybody remembers of the roots in the tree in uh, 1944, and then the whole idea of taking all of these folk songs and, and preserving them. Why, why is preserving history so important to you as an artist, particularly right now? If we are taking away meaning in pop music, it will be just noise. I think artists can speak about social issues, about pain in a slightly different language. Especially in this moment, humanity is going through very difficult times. Pandemics, wars, natural disease. And all of this is reflected in pop music. It's our way to speak with each other. That's why I adore this contest. Yeah. I decided to tell the story about my great-grandmother. To tell the story about Crimean de deportation. Because... My kids are fifth 
in my generation who forced to flee because of the Russian aggression. Yeah. Because my great-grandmother was deported with the five kids in her arms in a cattle trains to Central Asia without any chance to survive, but she survived. She yeah. survived. After I released this song, Russian tried to, to say that it's political and so on. But yeah. in the beginning, for me, it was the moment when I can say that I can spread this story, not just for Ukrainians, for the whole world to see. I think that's why people find Eurovision, right? Exactly, because they understand me exactly what I'm fighting for. I performed in this um, national selection in Berlin, and we collected more than uh, 67 million euros for Ukraine. It was Eurovision community. They asked me to sing 1944 in this national selection in Berlin. I said, oh my God, how can I sing? I'm, I'm so sad. But they said, we can collect money for Ukraine. I said, Okay, I'll try. And yeah. again, it was Eurovision. On the on the personal side, though, I wonder because, you know, as a person who is so focused on roots, it must be hard to be away from your family. Can you talk about that experience? It's true. It's true, Charlie. It's really true because it's the most sad thing in the world that I, I leave my kids yesterday in... Istanbul with my sister and uh, I, I have to separate myself. One of me is a mother, another one activist, uh, singer, songwriter and uh, my husband uh, in Kiev today. Emotionally, it's, I'm so tired of this and I try to find some inspiration for us to keep moving on. But it's really hard. When you were looking for that power to keep moving on, do you have things that you turn to? Hmm. Movie. (laughs) Perfect. I love it. Well, it also seems like you're a big uh, Game of Thrones fan, too, uh, because we talked about it in the interview. Also in uh, Simo, right? Sumuyu. Yes, yes. Uh, There's a lyric about Game of Thrones, yeah? Ah, Oh, my God. Wow, I even um, forgot about this. For me, it was a really interesting thing, how they create this illusion on folk songs, how they mix this all Iranian, uh, Turkish, Scandinavian melodies. It's a magic, it's a magic. So to connect it to Karam, how did the idea of using the orchestra with the folk musicians come up? For me, it, 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 it was like to to show this, beauty of this music that it really can can stay forever as a music by Beethoven or or Mozart. If you add something electronical as a bass or a guitar or keyboards during the time it get old. And for me it was my try, my attempt to bring it up on the Carnegie Hall or Albert Hall level to show this, to show this power of this music. And uh, that's why I decided to record more than 80 musicians, symphony and plus 
folk musicians from Crimea. But unfortunately, can you imagine that nowadays I even can speak with them because it's really dangerous for them. It's insane. 21st right. century, I couldn't speak with my musicians in Crimea because this album, even my personality, it's dangerous. Russian authorities, they really afraid of uh, indigenous people in Crimea. Right. It's dangerous for him. They dream is to make Crimea is purely military uh, foothold. And they destroy language, culture, and they rewrite history. And I understand it, this, that it will be really hard to release this album because the album is forbidden. Yeah, yeah. That's why it's so important now, right? Because Putin's whole project is to erase, right? And so to have this album as a reminder of actually what Crimean history is and actually who's been there for forever, it's such a powerful statement that, you. um, that you're making. The only other question that I really had is, you know, because we're a podcast that talks mostly about Eurovision, how do you think um, the organization can continue to support artists who are doing um, the kind of work that you're doing? And, and are there changes that you would like to see? Um, we can't lose our empathy. Why I decided to live in 1944 part without any language, English or Crimean Tatar, despite of that, it was the, for the very first time then Crimean Tatar language sounded on the stage. I decided to show that this part, it's emotional language. You will understand me without any words. You will understand my pain. And that's why on your question, I believe that Eurovision Song Contest, not just about the fast, about the pink colors, of course, it's a good features of this contest, but in the same time, it's a, a great platform for showing that we are human beings. It's a good platform to show this month is LGBTQ rights. We are all together. In other months, it's about someone else. It shows us a little that we are not alone in this fucking world. That's the perfect place to end because I really, I think that speaks to why people come to Eurovision and certainly why I fell in love with your music is just the humanity that pours out of every everything that you do, which I think is so lovely. Um, but so thank you so much for taking the time. Okay, so we are here with Brooke Gladstone, who is the host of On the Media on Public Radio. Uh, her list of accomplishments are like way too much to talk about here, but I do want to highlight um, a couple of things that are very relevant to our podcast. Um, she's written two books about the relationship between the media and democracy and history. That's a One comic book and a pamphlet. <laughs> <laughs> a graphic novel uh -huh. <laughs> that I would pull out, except it is holding my microphone up right now. <laughs> 
Um, but I also, you know, want to highlight that um, Brooke spent several years reporting from Russia um, in the immediate aftermath or a few years after. One year after, exactly. One year after. 92 of, to 95. Of the, the Soviet collapse. The perfect guest for our Eurovision <laughs> podcast. Absolutely. Especially because I know absolutely nothing about Eurovision. It was like America and soccer in the 1950s when I, when I come along. I've seen an occasional clip, and it's usually about a controversy. Someone who has had uh, an intensely political record either elevated or suppressed, and there is a very powerful global reaction to it. And that is really the perfect segue into what we're going to do today. Well, I was going to say, this is why you bring a radio host on. <laughs> you know? She does your segues for you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, but yeah, so um, this episode uh, primarily concerns this rule that Eurovision is a non-political festival and that all acts must not be political. That's insane on its face because anybody uh, who knows you, about <laughs> well anybody who understands about art it's usually propelled by a kind of passion for the life that an artist is living and i want to say right now that we can just end the episode because <laughs> no but I too much too much praising <laughs> no, but, it, but but well it is that interesting combination i think with your vision that it had a political purpose of bringing Europe back together after the Second World War through the universal language of music, which you'll hear them say a lot. It's stitching Europe together under the banner of these sort of internationalist values. Well, stick, yes, precisely, that's it. You have to have some agreed upon values. Yes. It's the problem with keeping the United States of America stitched together. Those <laughs> values have atomized. There's actually, like, speaking about America, there's, like, a parallel that I keep thinking about to the Supreme Court. Like, the idea that textualism is just, like, we're looking up these definitions and we happen to choose this dictionary. And what it allows, like, the Supreme Court to do is hide the underlying values underneath their decisions, right? It takes it out of the realm of articulated debate. But I do think part of why we're talking about all of this now is also that you know, for a while, those values that Eurovision claimed to represent um, were kind of taken for granted. It was the end of history. We thought democracy had won. How old is Eurovision? Eurovision was started in 1956. Yes. What? Well, this is, this is the thing that's so interesting about, you know, when the American Idols and those kind of competitions came out, Eurovision had been doing this for already you know, 50 years almost at yeah. that point. Spoken um, like a Norwegian. <laughs> exactly. So all, everything we just uh, talked about is goes into the game we're going to play. Mm -hmm. uh, because as a very serious podcast, we deal with very serious political issues exactly. via trivia games. <laughs> yeah. So the, uh, the game is called, Is It Political? So we're going to describe a Eurovision song, and then we want you to tell us if you think the European Broadcasting Union, also known as the EBU, uh, saw the performance as a violation of Eurovision's rules and sanctioned, censored, or rejected uh, the performance in any shape or form. Sounds good? Sounds good. Okay. So first up, we have in 2013, the Finnish singer Krista Siegfrieds submitted Marry Me, which centered around a lesbian wedding. Mm -hmm. For context, gay marriage was illegal in Finland until 2017. Oh. Marry 
Yeah, so the iconic moment of that is the gay kiss at yep. the end of the song. Mm-hmm. And uh, you said that gay marriage was illegal. And this song was called Marry Me. Yes, correct. I'm going to say not political. She sure, nailed correct. it. Yep. Yes. Yes. Correct. yes. Partly it's because the uh, the landscape was changing so absolutely convulsively at that point. You could barely keep up. And yeah. so uh, it was about love. It was two attractive white women kissing each other. I yes. mean, you know, what could go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> Which actually is what the EBU said in response. <laughs> Verbatim. Verbatim. <laughs> Really? Um, so we're going we're gonna to move forward to our next video, which is 2003. Brooke, um, I don't know if you were still following Russian pop culture then, but the group Tattoo mm-hmm. um, performed at Eurovision and ended uh, their song uh, with a same-sex kiss. Different night, different people. Does he want or doesn't? Does he love me or not? Uh, the early see. 2000s were a great period for lyrics, let me tell you. Okay, 2003. Yeah, so this is a decade before um, the Finnish song. But not sanctioned by the government. Yes, actually. Sanctioned by the government. Uh, okay, it's just about yeah, the it's, kissing? Yeah, it's just the kiss. I'm going to say not political. They called it political. Mm. So actually, the one thing that I did not uh, say in my setup is that they actually were not allowed to perform that kiss at Eurovision. Oh, what was the explanation? What uh, was the Eurovision political... said that they were a family show. This is just uh, homophobic, basically. Yeah, It's not about a legal, yeah. institutionalized. This is just a kiss in it, 2003. Exactly. You know, in 2003, it was considered a political issue. Uh, Lawrence v. Texas was recently overturned, right? You yeah. know, Eurovision can I back away paid, from its values. I should have paid more attention to the, to the time. I needed to think of what else was going on. So that brings us to the uh, next entry, which is in 2009. Mm-hmm. Georgia submitted its entry, We Don't Want to Put In, in the direct shadow of the Georgian-Russian War. They... The lyrics that you just read. Yes. We don't want to put in. We don't want to put in. Yes. Now, was there reference to the war? We don't want to put in. Uh-huh. So, what do we think, Brock? Some good stuff, just good stuff. We don't want to put in. The negative mood is killing the crew. I'm going to try to shut in. Some disco tonight. Oh my God, she's just in love with the song. <laughs> I mean, it's so obvious, but it's a disco song. Right. We don't want to put in. We don't want to put it. Come on, it's political. Yes, yes, it is. It is. It definitely, as a double entendre, like has like definite vibes of Britney Spears' uh, oh, If You, if you seek, seek Amy, where you're like, it actually doesn't work the other way. <laughs> yeah. Okay, staying with our Putin theme. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2016, Ukrainian artist Jamala submitted the song 1944, uh, which told the story of her great-grandmother being expelled from her home during Stalin's ethnic 
cleansing of Crimean Tatars. So it's it's Jamala who had just fled her home in Crimea after the invasion, performs this song. Strangers are coming. They come to your house. They kill you all and say we're not guilty. Not guilty. Where's your heart? Humanity rise. You think you're gods, but everyone dies. Don't swallow my soul. Our souls. Yeah, so what do we think? So political. I know, right? Uh, it was not political, and in mm. fact... Because it's historical? Because it's a historical, right. and it's a personal family story. And, I mean, Crimea, Crimea was, was 2014. I mean, two years later. You talked to her? Yes. Oh, she's cool. Incredible. She's amazing. Quick plug, her, her latest album is this um, orchestral arrangement of these Crimean uh, folk songs. It's very much Putin is trying to erase our history and erase the idea that Crimean Tatars have been here forever, creating this this giant album that sort of researches and preserves all these all these folk songs as a sort of direct response. Like it's kind of it's again another reason why sort of art storytelling history. If you try to take the politics out of it, you're left with a very sort of small uh, rump. Uh, I think also a, uh, it's interesting because before they b- uh, banned that uh, gay kiss. There was an openly trans woman who won, who won the competition. And I think the argument there is that she was just existing while the kiss felt like a protest. Advocacy. Uh, I do understand the impulse to try and thread that needle. Yes. Because right. uh, it could instantly dissolve into nothing but another front for warfare, yeah. whether cultural sure. or social or political. These sorts of international forums are perfect places, and especially any place where artists gather and presume to speak for their generation. For their generation. And no, and I think you're right. That's which is actually why I think I'm not there are people who see this as a censorship issue. And I'm much more on the side of like I actually think that Eurovision should go farther in terms of just articulating what its values are. And so you Well, the have... trouble is, is that they're not consistent, Charlie, as we right. as you've demonstrated and to me during these contests. Yes, you're right. They're inconsistent about these values. And maybe that means that they don't actually believe them. But like I interviewed the um, deputy director general of the EBU. And from his point of view, these are all values that they believe in. And it's just important to keep them implicit. So we invite people in and we don't repel people. It's worth uh, putting in context the Ukrainian winner. Because they won, they are now the host for the uh, for the next year's competition. Ah. And Russia sent an artist who had violated Ukrainian law by visiting Crimea. And this was kind of a masterful uh, PR move on Putin's part as she was wheelchair bound. So all of the press around this was, look at these Ukrainians refusing to let in this Russian pop star because she visited part of Russia that's maybe sort of Ukraine. And look at her, she's in a wheelchair. Russia basically pulled out of the competition that year. Lived but the EBU, the EBU was happy to have them back the next year. Thank God. Yeah, and also ever since uh, the annexation of Crimea, when they would call Russia for their votes, people in the audience would boo. 
And what was what was the apolitical EBU's response to that? <laughs> to introduce anti-booing technology on the broadcast. <laughs> There's really no way to win this because right. even if you're a good game player and you realize, okay, <laughs> these are the rules, yeah. it changes every time. Exactly. The point of this is not that Brooke is a is bad game player. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I think if anything, this is designed to prove the inconsistency. We do have one more. Okay. And um, c- we can't talk about political controversy in music without talking about Madonna. Uh-huh. Um, and in 2019, Eurovision had Madonna perform uh, during the Interval Act. Um, she actually wasn't a contestant. Not, a, not mm-hmm. in the competition. And in 2019, the competition was in Israel. Essentially, what happened was in the middle of her medley, um, two of her dancers turned around to reveal that one had a Israeli flag on his back and the other had a Palestinian, Palestinian flag. So there were also some tensions leading up to this because it was announced without the EBU that the competition was going to be in Jerusalem. Who announced it? Uh, the winning artist from Israel saying, see you next year in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just like Passover. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then yeah. didn't, didn't Netanyahu also. And yeah. So uh, each host country has to uh, whittle it down to two viable options. And the EBU picks between those two. So the EBU's way of handling it was not to s- say anything about we can't host this in Jerusalem. They just picked Tel Aviv a great way to avoid the controversy. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the problem was they do this thing called uh, postcards where you show off the host country. Quite a few of their uh, postcards were filmed on a disputed territory. Who's um, they? The Israeli broadcaster, who is right. a public broadcaster associated yes. with the Israeli government. So what is the penalty for being ruled political? You don't, you get kicked out of the contest. So, so different, different things. We don't want to put in, yeah. um, was not allowed to perform. The competitor who pulled out a Palestinian flag on stage, it's a live broadcast, so they got fined. Um, Madonna, well... Well, let's watch Madonna. I mean, we'll, we'll watch Madonna. We can talk about what happened okay. to her. Okay. Um, Here we go. You know, I think, I mean... The controversy over Israel is all well and good, but I think we should discuss auto-tuning because it sounds horrible. <laughs> all of the press about this afterwards was Madonna used auto-tune. <laughs> and I was sitting here being like, wait a minute. Oh, wait really? A minute. Okay, so I'm going to say that mostly because I feel like you gave away the yeah, game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, uh, that this was uh, judged political. Yes, uh, this is now a performance that is not included in um, official EB- EBU materials mm-hmm. like the DVD. And I think, uh, and also, you know, during the dress rehearsal, she didn't do that. So it's like a surprise the thing. Run through. Yes, exactly. Yes. And so this was this was deliberately a surprise. Yes. Correct. So they were gonna penalize her just for uh defying the rules of the uh Yes. Uh you know, what you have is an institution thwarted and they yeah. won't tolerate that. But I think that it probably was on the fact that she violated their rules. I think particularly given that Israel was using it as a platform to justify settlements. Well, using it as a platform to uh, normalize Normalize its position in Europe. Yes. Like, they're very explicit, right? So you put an organization that wants to keep its values implicit 
up against <laughs> a country that is totally comfortable saying like, no, 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 these are our values. We own this territory. Mm-hmm. Like you're going to get your, your platform is going to get used for stuff that you claim well, look at, to keep your hands clean of. Look right? at the reason why Turkey is out of the competition, right? right? They've they've said that as long as a bearded drag queen can win the competition, which happened in 2014, they want nothing to do with it. Like Turkey's a perfect example in the election that just happened. Erdogan's opponent um, made it part of his platform that he was like, I'm bringing Turkey back into Eurovision, right? And <laughs> so it's like, it's in that context, it was very clear what Eurovision stood for. So this has been you know, your, your maiden voyage, maiden voyage, your Eurovision introduction. Uh, like what are your impressions? I think it's, uh, like so many things, a perfect prism to look at a very fractured part of the world. Well, every part of the world is fractured, but here you, uh, you really have a chance to see it play out on a stage. This is, uh, a real, uh, dumpster fire sometimes. (laughs) It would be interesting to know if there were years when they didn't have these kinds of controversies. Was there a time of calm? It's so hard in 2023 to recall that time. I guess it was, it's the end of history. It's, uh, you know, it's, uh, 1991 to, you know... Right, that brief period when... Yeah. yeah. You know what would be so good for the world, now that I understand what Eurovision is, if it became kind of global vision? You know, it is actually a thing that that Jamala talks about a lot in the context of why Eurovision should be a little bit more permissive about, about the politics is that it's like the potential for it as a platform to communicate from f- particularly from countries or peoples that get ignored by um, the like media, like the entire global south, like as the they entire like to global say south. these days. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it would be an opportunity to endow those people with complexity to to show them in full color rather yes. than the black and white that they're usually depicted. It's uh, I see it now after my maiden voyage as a <laughs> as another avenue for learning about each other. But any institution that's run by bureaucrats, however well-intentioned, it's it's going to fall on its face again and again. But I guess it's a tribute that it still, that it keeps going. Well, going. yes. And and in that, Eurovision is a metaphor for the world. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so far. With that, uh, we yes, should say thank Brooke. you so much, Brooke, for being on the podcast. This we- was amazing. My pleasure. I mean, what a great time talking to Brooke. Obviously, you have all these political conflicts. You have a lot of different opinions on the European continent, but you also have a ton of different languages. And that's the focus in our next episode, where we're focusing on Eurovision's language rule. The contest has gone back and forth since its inception over whether to require that acts sing in their country's national language. Right. And this is a rule that when it was implemented, um, was uh, designed to sort of keep the diversity of language at Eurovision. Um, but the on the other side, it does end up requiring that a lot of smaller countries uh, sing in languages that most of the televoting audience are not going to understand. And uh, then we're going to interview Go A, who are actual Ukrainian folklore experts um, and whose use of language in their music is very specifically employed to communicate Ukrainian culture. 
And then we talked to Soman Chinani, a New York Times bestselling author whose novels were adapted into a hit Netflix movie. He brings that experience to a game about how lyric choices in Eurovision songs on the page affect the visual performance we see on screen. Yeah, he's a great time. Thank you so much to Brooke. And thank, thank you, you to Jamala. so much to Jamala. Um, uh, and, and thank you, Magnus. <laughs> but, you know, we will be back next week as always. And until then, happy Eurovision. Eurovision.